Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hello? Top of the morning to you, Jim. <laughs> Hi, Maeve. Happy, happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you. I just wanted to get a preemptive strike in before you did. So that's why I said the thing that Irish people never really say. Yeah, I'm not wearing green. So you're probably pretty mad. I know you're not. And I think that's offensive. And oh. you'll be hearing from my solicitor when he gets out of the pub. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> a solicitor is what? Oh, an attorney, my attorney. Oh, oh, right. Okay, right. When he gets out of the bar, the saloon. <laughs> <laughs> ah, threatening litigation. That's very American. Yeah. Uh, how are you celebrating? Do you celebrate? Is it just an annoyance? I mean, no, I. it's not like... A, we're having like a nice meal tonight, but it's not particularly... We're still in very severe lockdown here with like a three-mile radius. Yeah. So, but today, I don't know who it was because he was dressed as a leprechaun, but I think it was a local, a local politician <laughs> drove by our house and like my nieces and nephews were all standing outside and he like jumped out of the car and uh, <laughs> was, they were like, is that supposed to be St. Patrick? Like it was confusing what? and frightening. <laughs> a local politician did this? <laughs> Yeah, like they had a drive-by parade because, you know, of COVID. And he was dressed as, I think, a leprechaun. Like he was a full-size man, but he had on like a, a full suit and, you know, like a head what? Of, a, of a leprechaun. So, yeah, so he, he jumped out of the car and everyone, you know, kind of <laughs> stepped back <laughs> and he gave medals out to children just saying, you know, St. Patrick's Day medals. And then my nephew started really weeping uncontrollably. And um, Out of fear? <laughs> I think so. Gratitude? I, I, I imagine there's a, it's kind of difficult to parse the emotions in a scene like that. Yeah, he seemed to be frightened. And I was and certainly he, he's on edge. <laughs> yeah. And that's funny. He is a leprechaun, so I don't know why he was so nervous. Oh, about. wow. Okay, a lot to unpack here. Um, mm -hmm. This is Social Distance, the Atlantic's podcast about leprechauns. Uh, <laughs> the, I'm sorry, let me start again. The Atlantic's podcast about the pandemic. I'm Jim Hamblin. Yeah. I'm a doctor and a staff writer with The Atlantic. Yeah, and I'm Maeve Higgins. I'm a comedian and a contributing writer for The New York Times. And I didn't mean to take over the top of the show, but it no, is but St. Patrick's you, Day. Yeah, and you are in Ireland. And I am St. Patrick. Oh, um, that's yeah. too much. <laughs> so it's not that, <laughs> but Americans do St. Patrick's Day very wrong, right? Well, that's where we got the idea of having a parade from, was America. So I don't what? mind. Yeah. Oh. Oh. It's just like Halloween. Like Halloween came from Samhain, you know, the Celtic celebration, but the Americans just did it so well. So we started to, you know, put on costumes. And yeah, that's an American idea. It's really nice to talk about something other than the pandemic for, for a moment. <laughs> I know. And look, I appreciate you showing such an interest in my culture. But 
I do want to say, I listened to the show last week. It was your one-year anniversary episode. Congratulations to you and Catherine and AC and Kevin, everyone who puts it together. And loads of the listeners responded. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's been an honor to do this, and I appreciate people listening. And mm-hmm. I appreciate people saying that I'm funny, which was kind of the, mm-hmm. the bulk of the responses, right? Well, I have the mailbag, and oh. we d- there was definitely a lot of responses, if that's what you mean. And well, I just, yeah, I heard, you know, a lot of people saying like, thanks, Jim, for the facts and for, you know, just being such a dry harbinger of doom, you know, and they really did appreciate that, I think. Well, that's nice, at least. I just wanted to be a harbinger of something. (laughs) No, Jim, no, everyone just adores you. And they also have questions for you. Here we go back to the pandemic. I look forward to the day when our podcast can be entirely about leprechauns. But for now, we persist in the face of what you, you, you rightly mentioned is very a very bad circumstance uh, in Ireland. Across Europe, there's a big wave happening that's vexing. Yeah, certainly. And I suppose like the big question that I wanted to ask you about today was the AstraZeneca vaccine, because that was between yeah. a fifth and a quarter of Ireland's vaccines. And now that stopped maybe temporarily. Britain relies really heavily on that. But yeah, countries around Europe have suspended it for now. Right. And that is over some reports of concerns about people developing clots, blood clots, after Mm -hmm. having received the vaccine. There are uh, roughly 30 such reports. And according to what I've seen, that is given the scale of how many people are getting vaccinated and how common it is to get blood clots, actually not more common. You know, we see people in the hospital for blood clots all the time. And that rate of development of blood clots doesn't actually seem to be higher than you would expect for a given population during that time. Hmm. It's unclear to me exactly what the concern is, and it seems undue. It is amazing that they stopped giving the vaccine while figuring this out. I mean, absolutely, we need rigorous observation and measurement and reporting of any apparent adverse effects. But given the surge that's happening right now, you know, you have one known risk, a very big known risk. And to just stop giving the vaccine isn't like that's not a precaution in the face of a known risk. I I feel like people are looking at the problem a little bit wrong. Like, you know, the trolley car problem. Oh, yeah, it does it trolley car come it's going to hit the child but actually i don't know it. <laughs> well, there are all different kinds of iterations i think what the classic okay. one is like like there's five people who are uh on the track and a trolley car is coming and would you pull the switch so that only one person was hit instead of five would you do this oh. active action to objectively minimize the harm but it involves you causing someone's death who was not otherwise going to die there's a bit of a trolley car dilemma here in that when you stop the vaccination program, you, you're you prolonging this, people are going to get sick and die. And yeah. so if you have a potential curious observation about blood clots, it's not a neutral thing during the pandemic to pause vaccination. Mm. It's a, an admission you are going to let some people get sick from this virus while you figure out what's going on, if there is even a relationship with the blood clots. So, oh. For sure. I mean, it's already affected, you know, thousands of people in Ireland that are in the high risk category. They now have to wait longer and remain in danger for a much longer time. So, yeah. But we have a hard time like giving vaccinations when we think there might be some it's that sort of active risk of like 
even in the face of a known risk, which is like the five people who are in the path of this trolley car, if we think there might be one person on the tra- on the side track where we divert the trolley car to, we are really hesitant to do that. It's just about like active, active vaccination. We tend to really overestimate those risks. Hmm. Um, so I get it, but I would not have stuck. I've not, I mean, I think it absolutely deserves to be looked into, but until there's reason to believe these things are connected <laughs> to, to pause vaccination is a major issue. So I'll be watching it closely. You know, there's been like German doctors crying because they have to throw out vaccines. You know, what you're saying seems to chime with a lot of the science community. So, I mean, it's um, to the point of even if it was clear the vaccine was causing blood clots, then you have an interesting discussion about mm-hmm. whether or not you use it. I know that AstraZeneca, the vaccine, doesn't affect a lot of our US listeners, which is where most people are, but it's a really important vaccine globally. And it's an issue that I I anticipate will continue to come up over the course of vaccination rollouts of sort of isolated reports of looking at a curious correlation and having this instinct to just just pause, just wait until we figure it out. And that's not a safe default response. Great. Thank you, Jim. So, you know, we got a ton of listener mail. So I'm going to ask you to answer a few quick questions from them. All right. Okay. Okay. I'll do my Light- best. <laughs> okay, lightning round. Um, this first one, it's uh, it's a voicemail, and this is from Renee. I'm suddenly in a really great mood because it was just announced that Alaska has expanded vaccines to anyone over the age of 16. So I'm way excited. Um, but my husband went and got his vaccine today because he's an essential worker, and that was the qualification before. And he asked me as he was walking out the door, if I don't have a reaction to the vaccine, does that mean I've already had COVID? And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that, because I thought that was kind of an interesting question. All right. Bye. So if you don't have a reaction to the vaccine, does that mean you have already had COVID? Uh, It does not mean that. Uh, Most people have no reaction to the vaccine. Most people Mm. feel fine. When you hear about... um, some people have symptoms, some muscle soreness or fatigue after, especially after the second shot. That is still a minority of people. Um, it's not uncommon. It's not something to worry about. But no, most people are totally fine. Um, hmm. But I, I love the excitement in Renee's voice. That's great. I we know. Should all be so, we should all be so thrilled about the vaccine. I know. It's so um, cool. It's so yeah. great. So yeah. um, this is something that you've talked about a lot. But William asks, why do we still not know whether a vaccinated person can transmit the virus? Tens of millions of people have been vaccinated. Why don't we know the answer to this? What kinds of studies or experiments would be necessary to figure it out? And are we actively pursuing this question? Um, yes, we are. We discussed this a little bit a couple episodes ago with Dr. Rasmussen. And it's a complex question that mm-hmm. has to do with different types of immunity. So when you uh, become immunized, you're not immediately coated in armor and you're like a nonstick pan and a virus can't ever cling to you. Um, But the vaccines um, help your body just eradicate the virus, stop it from replicating, stop you from getting very sick. So um, the expectation would be that you can carry the virus briefly um, and transmit it theoretically. What you actually look for and we'll be seeing in coming months is once you have vaccinated populations, how much spread is there in real life? Because you can do all the lab studies you want looking mm. at can a person theoretically carry the virus and then 
to test if they transmit it, you'd have to actually put them in a room with people and, you know, that would be unethical to do. So the only way to really answer this question beyond the theoretical is to watch these numbers as they unfold. Once you get to certain levels of vaccination in a population, how quickly do numbers of cases fall? How long does that last? And that will give you a sense of, yeah, there's basically no transmission happening once people are vaccinated versus if cases continue to percolate, then you might think, yeah, it's a little more feasible than we thought. Okay, great. So we got another email from a listener, Marcio, who was wondering why we don't hear more about vaccinating children. And Kate asked what children can do this summer. Um, School has been the hardest thing to comment on since the beginning of the Mm -hmm. pandemic. I've shied away from the question at every point. Um, Mm -hmm. What we do know is that this disease is about 10,000 times more fatal for chronically ill older people compared to children. This is Hmm. not the same disease. It's very, very low risk for kids. So if we are able to, by summer, get to a point where um, high-risk people, most adults are protected, Mm -hmm. we would probably see, if accordingly we see numbers of hospitalizations and deaths fall dramatically, there's so much pent-up demand for kids to have social lives and to have school and summer school. Mm -hmm. I, I have to believe most places would move toward doing that as quickly as possible. And I don't think there's an, a tolerance to move to try to get cases to zero before. I don't think anybody would advocate that. So I think kids are kind of, um, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> just to, for, for some specifics, right? Like when I first moved to New York, I was a babysitter and in the summer, the kids would go to an art camp. And so if they were going to an art camp, you know, in a basement of like a brownstone, should they all go in and wear masks? Like they're in school, should they be in little groups? Like, or could they do outdoor gymnastics? This is all going to depend on how well we get vulnerable populations vaccinated Mm -hmm. and how much virus is in an area. Because... If there's still a lot of virus everywhere in a lot of cases, then people are going to be worried about anyone who's out transmitting, uh, potentially transmitting the virus and and who isn't vaccinated, even if they're low risk themselves. But if a a place like New York City manages to get the cases really, really low, I think then the kids will be out doing all these things. These are great questions, and I'm optimistic that kids can be doing all these things. You know, to kind of come back to what we were talking about before with the trolley problem, it's easy to want to say, let's just play it cautious and cancel things or keep kids uh, away from camp or something like that. And I'm very mindful now that that's not without cost itself. We've known that all along, but especially now, to me, the danger in kids gathering was that they may be factors that spread the virus to to more vulnerable populations. And once you have those populations vaccinated, I think that Mm -hmm. argument falls apart. So you'll be able to look at kids without thinking that there is a group of vectors right there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we'll want to keep a close eye certainly on, you know, it's not impossible for kids to become significantly ill with this, yes. this disease. Yeah. What are the c- circumstances that predict that? Are there any ways that we can bring that number to zero? Of course, no one wants one kid ever to get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what makes these these decisions so difficult, especially politically. But I think there's enough public sentiment right now that it's like, yeah, we kind of just need to get schools open and 
some kids might occasionally get sick, but it's not as bad as closing schools. I mean, what I would do every summer as a child would be lie in my bed reading and humming. (laughs) Pretty safe. (laughs) That's what you did? Yeah, that's what I did. I was so happy to get like three months school holidays. I would just immediately get into bed and start reading. (laughs) Hmm. Wow. I suppose you were out on a boat or a horse or something. Yeah, I used to race motorcycles. <laughs> um, As a 12-year-old? I went through a kind of rebellious phase. Cool. Um, had a lot of piercings and tattoos, but <laughs> those days are behind me now. Oh, that's when you got your tattoos. Yeah, that, that's why they're all, they're all stretched out. The, the <laughs> tattoo artist was like, you're too small. You're, you're tiny. You're gonna, these are going to become very different looking when you're... <laughs> big and you know oh so that airplane that's across your shoulders that's a bumblebee (laughs) yeah it was a model airplane now it's a full-size airplane um we'll have to look do a retrospective on on my childhood later yeah Um, yeah so jim we also got a listener question about the covid tracking project which is now ended but is always in our parts Hearts and Minds, started by uh, Alexis Madrigal and, and Rob mm-hmm. Meyer here at The Atlantic. So do you want to actually call Alexis? Because we could just put it to, this question directly to him. Oh, yeah. Who better to speak about uh, CTP than Alexis mm-hmm. himself? I also wanted to check in with him on where we are with cases, hospitalizations, all the numbers, because it seems like things are plateauing a bit. And I know mm-hmm. what we're seeing in Europe is quite concerning. So I'm interested to see how he feels. Yeah, let's call Alexis. Hey, Alexis. Hey, how are you? Hi, Alexis. We have a question. That's why, you know, we felt like only you could answer it, Jim. Is Mm -hmm. that right? I would say so. Yeah. Okay, good. It's from a listener, Tim, and he wants data. Alexis, get ready. (laughs) Now that the COVID tracking project has wrapped up and is no longer pushing out daily updates, where is the best place to look for this type of data? The daily update with four side-by-side graphs showing the tests, infections, hospitalizations, and deaths was the perfect amount of info for me to get daily. I really miss it now that it's gone. Oh, well, um, thanks for that. Um, mm-hmm. e, I, I also agree. It is the perfect amount of information. We can add some other things now, too, though, using the federal data. Um, if you go to covidtracking.com and you go to our analysis and insight sort of section, there's a post called, what's a simple way to get the data you guys used to provide? Um, we have really wanted people to go to the federal data now that it's solid. And some of our folks have been putting together some basic charts for those things, like that kind of what we called the four up. I think for most of the things um, that people want, the CDC's COVID data tracker does a decent job. I do think, to your listeners' concern, there isn't one place where you can just sort of like get that, like at a glance, what's going on in the nation right now. And we've actually been um, pushing CDC and HHS to um, put together exactly that kind of feed, which would then make it very easy both for us and for everybody else to drop that into a dashboard. Um, 
There's also more that is kind of interesting. I mean, one thing we can look at is hospital admissions, um, which move a little bit faster. Like, you know, in the previous data that we use on COVID tracking project, we used people who were like sort of in the hospital right then. And why that's important is that admissions and cases track each other really closely, but the cases data pipeline is flimsier. So when you get cases knocked out, you can go over and you can look at admissions and say like, well, are we, is this a real trend or is this a data artifact? I will say right now, I think we're seeing some bad news out of Michigan that is real cause for concern and that um, we're seeing not just increased cases there, but we're also seeing more hospitalizations. Is that an isolated case overall? Is the U.S. still doing okay? Or, or it, has your feeling changed since you last spoke to us? It's, it definitely is looking a little bit dicier. Um, yeah. You know, the Midwest and the Northeast definitely plateaued far above where we would have wanted to see that. One of the things that's also concerning about Michigan is that on sort of an absolute numbers, has the second highest number of confirmed B117 cases, the variant first identified in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and the state with the most, Florida, you know, has a much larger population. So when we zoom in, we also see that Detroit is kind of the locus of the, of the outbreak. And we also see that Detroit is under vaccinated relative to other places. So you can add all those things up and you're like, oh, wait, that is the potential for another large outbreak, at least in that local place. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think just, you know, listening to public health experts over the last few weeks, it sounds like that's kind of the expectation is that there will be some fires that get started. I think the real question, and I, honestly, I don't even know how to think about this or, or if it's going to happen. The real question is like, does that spread to the whole state? Does that spread to the whole Midwest? The kind of stuff that we saw in the fall and winter. Yeah. To me, the question is thinking about Manaus and reinfection. Are you seeing places light up that seem to have already been hard hit? I mean, it's tragic and preventable when you see a place that's not vaccinating as quickly as others or that uh, is seeing cases go up. But what, what would really yeah. raise this alarm in me is if you started to see it in a place that had like North Dakota or someplace that had exactly because I you mean, thought things were protected yeah yeah i mean if reinfections are a thing you're taking you know 100 or 120 million people off the probably have some form of immunity board um which then just makes the vaccination race you know just kind of moves us back on the track um and that would be that would be quite bad i mean you know jim you're referencing the place in brazil that appeared to have really high seroprevalence rates and then also had a, another brutal outbreak i mean still ongoing i I think there's been a lot of back and forth in the scientific community, and maybe this is just me wanting to be hopeful, that the Occam's razor explanation for that city is that the initial study around seroprevalence was flawed. And yeah. that we're not seeing huge amounts of reinfections. We're, in fact, seeing um, a study that, um, that overestimated seroprevalence, I mean, the number of people who'd previously been infected. And there are other... There are other lines of evidence that support that that's at least a possibility. Um, I think if it's not, it's like really, I mean, it's kind of the worst news in quite some time for the pandemic because it just means we've got longer to go than we thought. Right. Well, that's why, you know, I, that's what I'm most closely looking for in data 
right now. But it sounds like you're not seeing anything like that in the United States, these surges in places that you thought were already through the worst of it. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think the place, if, if just for the next week at least, maybe next few weeks, is to just really keep a close eye on what's happening in Detroit, what's happening in Michigan, and just watch that because it's really the place where we just see – you know, you see, I'm, I'm looking at the chart right now. I'm looking at a version of the four up, actually. Um, and, you know, you've got cases that have definitely ticked back up. I mean, nowhere near the levels, um, but just I know the shape of that curve and I know where, where it has gone in the past. Um, yeah. And then what I was hoping to see, perhaps, is that when I went over and looked at hospitalizations, you would see um, that not going up as quickly and we still see hospitalizations there. Um, another bit of data, and this is something we can do with the federal data, is we can look at that admissions data and we can break it out by age, you know, 50 plus, 60 plus, 70 plus. And we would like to ideally see that hospitalizations among older people, because vaccinations have been going on for longer and a much larger percentage of the older population has been vaccinated, we'd love to see that those hospitalizations were like totally being wiped out. But really on like a kind of state by state basis, it seems to be a little bit more variable than you might expect. And I have not done the analysis to know if that's because, you know, it's hitting in particular places where vaccine hesitancy is high or something else. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a little bit, it's, it's just like you want the story to be a teeny bit more clear cut right now, particularly with that like 60 plus group where, you know, as you get older in that age group, the risk of death gets so much higher. Yeah, I would expect that our cases would, even if they remained plateaued, the, the deaths and severe illness would quickly plummet and they're not as low as you are hoping. Yeah, I mean, deaths just take so long to show up on the board yeah. that I think we're still like a few weeks. I mean, th things have been dropping a lot. And so deaths are coming down. The The issue is, you know, that really reflects the change, you know, in February. And so we got to see what happens as we, we see cases tick back up, at least in some places. Um, and I think, you know, it it is amazing how quickly the country tried to just be like, okay, everything's cool again. You know, I mean, just, you know, I yeah. felt like that was happening exactly as we were crossing half a million deaths. And Things did look good at that point, but it just seemed like, boy, you know, the wise move, given everything we've seen, would have just been to wait a few more weeks, you know, and just see what happened. Yeah. And can I ask you about testing? Because it's all we talked about, like, in 2020, but it feels like it's been a little forgotten in favor of just talking about the vaccines. And, like, is that what you mean when you say we need to look closer? Like, do you mean testing? Well, yes, I think like if they could, I mean, you know, we've never deployed. So let me, I'll, I'll answer like the broader question first, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in 2020, basically, we built up enough diagnostic testing so that you can get a test pretty quickly if you're sick, you know, or you think you're sick. But we never really built the capacity for screening tests at, at, at large scale. There's some really interesting experiments going on, like in Massachusetts schools, for example, um, or even, you know, my school here in Oakland where, you know, kids are getting tested once a week and it's a screening test and, you know, we're trying to catch outbreaks and, and stop them. Mm -hmm. um, but because of that, the tool has just sort of gotten to, okay, we can tell you if you have a, the virus and not like we're using it as a public health tool that allows us to stop or slow outbreaks. 
I think that there's going to be a resurgence of interest in testing as people realize that this vaccine period is going to go on for quite some time where we still have cases. And especially, you know, we're not going to be vaccinating kids in the immediate term. And that means when kids go back to school next year, probably all their teachers will be vaccinated. Their parents will probably be vaccinated, but um, but they won't. And I think that one of the things that we should anticipate is that there will be, and there's money for this actually in Biden's American Rescue Plan to do this kind of testing in school, screening testing. And I, I think we should see a, a resurgence of interest. I mean, it makes sense that we're all talking about vaccinations, right? Like yeah, if you- Yeah, uh, incredible. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, a, a scientific miracle. And now, you know, the US actually doing fairly well in the scheme of, you know, the the rest of the countries in the world about getting those shots into arms. And so it, it, it there's a reason I think testing has fallen um, you know, back, but I, I, unfortunately, I think it will be back. Um, yeah. So, so do you imagine, like, do you picture, like, if we're going to a gig or like to see the kids in school concerts or something, everybody will just get tested on their way in? Um, I don't. At this moment in time, I don't think that vision is mm-hmm. going to become a reality. I think it's more like what happens, for example, at, at my kid's school here in Oakland, where you know, once a week your kids come home crying because they got a test at school. (laughs) That doesn't always happen. That doesn't always happen. They've gotten better. Sometimes they're quite proud of themselves for not having cried. Um, (laughs) But they, you know, because of that screening, there's actually been um, several positive tests of people. No one's symptomatic, but there's been three positive tests in the scheme of the last, you know, four or five months, but there's Mm -hmm. been no transmission in the school. This, we, we got another positive of a teacher a few weeks ago where it's pretty clear that like, he wasn't feeling sick and he would have gone to school um, and we would have had, uh, you know, a teacher interacting with a bunch of kids. Of course, you know, there's all these protocols and stuff, but it was better to not have a COVID positive person in the school. If I could come back to the idea of reinfection, I feel like a lot of our future of testing depends on how durable our immune responses are to the vaccine. Everyone's very hopeful that they'll last many years and we won't have to worry about that. Um, we know antibodies fade, so it's kind of come down to our, our T cell responses and how just how long you stay protected. And if, if you do start to see cases of reinfection, even if they're mild, I think if people aren't certain that after say a year, they're, they're definitely protected from a, with a vaccine, testing becomes a bigger part of our life than if yeah. you're kind of just like good for an indefinite period. We know that antibodies fade. And we're approaching this period right now is kind of people who got sick a year ago. Uh, how are their antibodies doing and how do they fare when exposed if they no longer have antibodies, but they have this robust, you know, all these other mechanisms, immune mechanisms we've talked about. Does that completely protect them? Does it mean they get a mild case or does it mean they're still potentially susceptible to something something bad? And those are very different futures for us. That's why I'm so interested in that data that you're, you know, if you're seeing places where there were high levels of infection and natural immunity starting to see increases that would be something i'd want to keep a close eye on yeah i mean and i think you know detroit because it wasn't hit quite as hard as new york you know has so many fewer people but it also it had pretty rough time in the spring wave it was one of the few cities you know up there with new orleans outside of the northeast that also got got hit pretty hard and so I, I would say that that news out of Michigan has turned down my optimism quite substantially over mm-hmm. what the next month could look like. I'm still medium term optimistic. I'm hoping yeah. for immune durability. And uh, like I was talking with Paul Offit not so long ago, you know, 
legendary immunologist and like you know he was like i believe the true correlate of of immunity is going to be the t cells you know and so if we're seeing that kind of good response then we do your immune system remembers and and we'll be okay obviously i i can add nothing to that <laughs> well yeah he's in the majority who are putting a lot of faith in this t cell memory which seems to be robust like the half life of our immune memories in the T-cells that we're seeing so far is just really impressive. And so assuming that holds up in the, in the real world and the virus doesn't significantly mutate in unpredictable ways that render that less effective, then we're fine. But I know some people I've spoken to also are less than confident in that and think we're going to need vaccines, you know, within a year or so. Yeah. Once again, I, not to panic anyone, I just, I think that's why the, the data still matter, continued advancements and testing still matter. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I love the vaccines. I'm really grateful <laughs> that they are working so well, but we do risk being complacent if we just think like they're going to last forever and we can forget everything that we used to have to think about. I'm rambling, Alexis, this has been really helpful. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Absolutely. Good to talk and, to you both. congrats on... Uh, COVID yeah. tracking project and you as you know our, yeah, our listeners are missing it and so, I can't yeah. believe you did it an entire year it's just incredible I uh, I think I feel it in every cell of my body actually <laughs> you know not your T-cells yeah I did <laughs> gonna protect them <laughs> you know actually yeah I mean what's funny about it I think is that I have spent so long wired into the pandemic data that like my literal like nervous system would like respond to the numbers changing. Oh. And over the last few days, as I've like, I have to dig a little more myself, you know, it's not like I just have this, like, you know, all these charts are just going to ask a bunch of people, Hey, can you make me like 10 charts? Actually, I can <laughs> still do that. But um, as I've looked at the, at the charts, it's like that reconnection back into the data as it starts to look bad or at least worse than it did, man, it's going to take a long time to work this out of my system, like to unlink from that data, even though we're not compiling it from states anymore. Because the second I see some of those charts, I'm just like, oh, I know what that is. I know what that means. And, and the truth is, I don't. You know, we don't know what's going to happen with a largely vaccinated mm -hmm. population and new variants. You know, there's these two big, I mean, we've talked about it on the show, I'm sure, you know, these two, two big new variables. But my body and my brain still responds to certain looks <laughs> of those charts like, oh, no. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Anyway, there's a sort of decoupling. Me. You might see this rise in cases, then you don't see a rise in hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, exactly. You know, it, yeah. You have to, it's like learning a new language. I hope you can reprogram your brain. Um, Me too. And we'll talk to you <laughs> I'm ready to just like watch Succession like everyone else. It'll be fun. Or just do that, yeah. <laughs> I think it's like a breakup, you know, it takes half the length of time you were with the person. So you've been doing this for years. So in six months time, you'll be totally fine. You'll be able to look at photos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, I won't have to delete it from my social media profiles. Yeah. And also, wait, Maeve, I thought it was two times the amount of time that you were in the relationship to really be over it. It's half? Oh, no. <laughs> that's a big difference. I think you've been doing this wrong, or I have. I don't know. <laughs> I still love him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But um, thank you for everything, though. Absolutely. Thank you for the for the show. Talk to you soon, guys. Take care. Bye. 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 Well, that was good to talk with Alexis again. He's always a ray of sunshine. 
It was wonderful. And Jim, before we go, there's something else that we wanted to mention, which was this series of shootings in Atlanta that appeared to be part of the anti-Asian wave of violence. And I suppose that's an aspect of the pandemic that we haven't talked about enough. Yeah. You had Donald Trump kind of actively stoking that for the past year. Mm -hmm. And just because he's gone now doesn't mean that those problems go away. And I think Mm -hmm. that's important. Important to remember that we need to kind of actively address these things which are ongoing, which Mm -hmm. racism and xenophobia are tied into pandemics throughout history. And uh, we should definitely talk more about that. Yeah, definitely. And for our Asian American listeners and our Asian listeners in America, we wish you peace of mind. We send you solidarity. And I think, Jim, we're going to come back to this issue and talk about it more, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, Can I just say one other thing? I mean, you can say it. (laughs) Jim, you didn't write this article, but there was one in the Atlantic about like how people are starting to work out more because they're going to, they're expecting to go out again this summer and they want to look good. (laughs) Did you see that piece? Yes, I did. Uh, I I think there's something in the idea of looking forward to like this metamorphosis like emergence from a cocoon into some new phase of life which could actually be helpful but i don't know if it needs to manifest as a body consciousness well that's how Um, butterflies did it though (laughs) they do come out um (laughs) looking arguably better certainly able to fly um (laughs) wait arguably better who's gonna argue that like a worm looks better than a butterfly they're a little furry and they just wiggle along on the street (laughs) gross little grubs and then yeah. there's these absolutely beautiful, you know, translucent flying creatures. There's no argument. I don't know. They're vulnerable. They can get blown away in the wind. <laughs> Low center of gravity. I'm all about caterpillars. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can debate this to no end. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know that it has to manifest as like physical exercise. But I think it's not kind of nice to look forward to post-vaccination life as a, a new lease on life, a new re- yeah. reason to start a new phase and live the way you want to live. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad that you think that. I really don't think it matters what you emerge looking like either, because I feel like people are going to be happy just to see each other, even if, you know, you do look like a little grub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people are going to have a reverse metamorphosis. Like, you used to be a butterfly, but now you are a caterpillar again. And that's yeah. okay. You and know? that's okay. And I missed you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and some people like caterpillars more, including me. Uh, thank you for asking about that, Maeve. I think that's an important point. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Um, okay. Well, I'll, I'll speak to you very soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for coming on again. And uh, I hope that uh, you have a very blessed day. Uh, blessed St. Patrick's Day. means the world to me Uh, do you want to share the credits Social Distance is produced by Kevin Townsend with help from senior producer AC Valdez our email is socialdistance at theatlantic.com and our voicemail is 202-642-6487 and as always if you like this show and want access to all of The Atlantic's journalism the best way to do that is by subscribing at theatlantic.com slash support us So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? 
Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.